There's nothing neat and easy about a Cassavetes film. It's very, very messy, which is kind of the antithesis to a Hollywood cinema. Hi, my name is Isabel Castadio, and welcome to MoMA's magazine podcast. It was 1977, and John Cassavetes had just completed his ninth film, called Opening Night. There was just one problem. No one was going to see it. In an effort to promote the film, Cassavetes arranged for an interview with the local L.A. news station, and it didn't go very well. I like that movie, and I, uh, I've never asked anyone to go to see the movie. I want to see Lines Around the Block tomorrow. <laughs> uh, really, Lines Around the Block, because it's, this is a, a stupid town. It is a stupid town in the sense that it is maybe the, one of the largest cities in the world. It's lazy. It's a polite. It is so sissy in its mentality, so go along with everything that goes along. It's uh, corporate owned. It's a, it's a town owned by Hollywood. And it's about time it grew up. It's about time that it, it, it took art and said, come on, baby, show me something. And we're showing them something. And there are not many people showing anything. The interview never aired, and no lines formed around the block. Within a few weeks, the film was dead. It had no distribution, no money for additional advertising, and almost no chance of recuperating its production costs. Though not responsible for the film's demise, the interview captures the characteristics that made Cassavetes such a unique figure in American cinema. Abrasive sincerity, wholehearted dedication to filmmaking, an equal disenchantment with the filmmaking industry, and an unrelenting insistence on pioneering his own path. I spoke to a curator who met him along the way, resulting in a comprehensive retrospective of Cassavetti's works in 1980, including Opening Night. Meet Lawrence Cardish. I was in the film department for 44 years, started as a curatorial assistant, ended as the senior curator in the film department. During his tenure at the museum beginning in 1966, Cardish came to know Cassavetti's, his aesthetics, his quirks, and his mission. So let's start at the beginning. I suppose you really understand that thing, huh, Betty? It's not a question of understanding it, man. If you feel it, you feel it, stupid. John Cassavetes said his directorial debut, Shadows, began as a dream in a New York loft on January 13th, 1957. There is very few films like Shadows before Shadows. Maybe, you know, some of the films that were being made in Paris at the late 50s, the birth of the new wave, or in London, uh, free cinema. He respected his colleagues in Hollywood, but he just said their kind of cinema is not the kind of cinema I want to make as an artist. He wanted to do a freer type of cinema. He wanted to do a cinema that was not as contrived and as controlled and as, in quotation marks, manufactured as popular cinema. And the way we make pictures is we make pictures for people that are interested in specifics. They're not going to be interested in everything. They're going to be interested in that scene. I love that scene. Somebody else say, I hate that scene because it has something to do with their life. And in that sense, it's not like a movie. It's a... Uh... A movie tries to pacify people by keeping it going for them so that it's sheer entertainment. Well, I hate entertainment. He liked shooting in homes, in parks, on streets, and not in a studio, which he felt very confining and, 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 and constricting. And he also really gave primacy to his actors. He let them shine. 
it wasn't total improv- improvisation, but there was a, a certain amount. But he didn't tamper down the emotional aspects of performance at all. His love stories are not the love stories that you would see in Hollywood cinemas. They're stories about two people who both hate and love each other at the same time and who have their own emotional problems and can't cope. Lady, you should eat something besides black coffee. David, please don't start lecturing me now. Shot on a shoestring budget raised largely by Cassavetes himself, Shadows established what would become some of the filmmaker's trademarks. Handheld camera work, location shooting, naturalistic dialogue, and forceful but sensitive characters played by the people he knew. And this is something Cassavetes would replicate again and again in many of his films. In 1971's Minnie and Moskowitz, for example, he cast both his mother and his mother-in-law, mother of actress and frequent collaborator Jenna Rollins. He shot the film in his and Jenna's home, and he mortgaged that home a few years later to help self-finance perhaps his best-known film, A Woman Under the Influence. So it was clear from the very beginning that John Cassavetes was doing something different. MoMA's chief curator of film, Regenda Roy, weighed in. It was before people thought about the viability of an independent film movement in the U.S. And in fact, I've read, and I have to ask him if it's true, but that Martin Scorsese said, after Shadows, we didn't have any excuses anymore, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we had to make our movies. Cassavetes basically threw down the gauntlet um, and was like, tell your stories. Tell your stories in the places that you know, with the people that you know, with your crowd. Um, And if people say they're not going to pay for it, do it yourselves. Um, so would Mean Streets be possible without Shadows? Um, probably not. There's the art that's kind of manufactured for a great public. And there's an art that is made basically because one individual has a vision and is able to carry it through. That's more difficult to do in film than many other media because film, or at least narrative film, requires the participation of many, many people. You just cannot do it alone. You need your actors. You need someone to raise uh, the funds. Uh, You can edit it alone, but you really do need other people to help you uh, participate in in the making of the work. John kept making his kind of cinema, an artist's kind of cinema. Very few companies would handle it, so he felt not only did he have to make the films, but he had to form a company to distribute the films, mm-hmm. to publicize the films. And he wasn't succeeding. He wasn't succeeding in finding venues. I know the New York Film Festival turned down the killing of a Chinese bookie, open, uh, opening night. He was very upset about, about not being recognized in his hometown, even after the success of Faces and A Woman Under the Influence. So it's not that he was a, he was a renegade by choice in terms of distribution. He was a renegade by necessity. He was a renegade by choice in terms of his art making, which is his filmmaking. He turned to me, or he, rather he turned to me because I was a representative of MoMA, and he, had, he said that he always loved this institution, uh, as you could see from the sequence in Shadows. Shadows was actually the beginning of Cassavetti's relationship with MoMA. 
One sequence shows the main characters roaming through the museum's sculpture garden, going from statue to statue, questioning their educations, art, and relationships with each other. And looking back, you have to ask. How did John shoot here? Cassavetes did approach the museum with his intention or desire to shoot here. And the museum was kind of like, well, go for it, but don't get in the way and make it quick, basically. So it wasn't a big officially sanctioned shoot, but it also wasn't uh, totally covert. They weren't um, you know, kamikaze filmmakers. He wanted the imprimatur uh, of MoMA, which we were, all of us, not just my, myself, but all my colleagues were happy to give him because we thought that these films were extraordinary. So we did arrange screenings of these films so that they could at least be seen by uh, uh, the public. Now, at that point, if you wanted to see a film, you basically had to go to a cinema. So anytime we would show a Cassavetes film, we would have a turnaway house of over, you know, 480 people. He was encouraged, we, and we encouraged him, and so we built up a, uh, a relationship with, uh, with, with John, uh, who also said he would give us his, the museum copies of his films if the museum wanted, and of course, of course we did. And that's how it kind of blossomed, the relationship between Cassavetes and, and the museum. I would get on the phone with him, or he would come into the office, and he would complain about the short-sightedness of certain New York film critics, certain New York film institutions, and say how pleased he was to have the recognition of, uh, of MoMA. The relationship continued to develop, and in 1980, Kardish organized a comprehensive retrospective of Cassavetti's works, bringing attention to films like Opening Night, for example, that had struggled to earn recognition upon their initial release. In a press release, Kardish said, quote, Over the past two decades, John Cassavetes, as a filmmaker working for the most part independently of the industry, has created a distinct, consistent, and significant body of work. The significance in part derives from the filmmaker's exceptional ability with actors, and in the manner in which these are recorded and edited. Did you feel a sense of responsibility in programming lesser known works to sort of keep the legacy of those films alive? Or yes, to, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I really felt from my years at MoMA doing retrospectives to do as comprehensive a retrospective as possible to just do, because there's always something of interest. Uh, unless the artist says, please don't show this. Then I try to argue with the artist, and if the artist says, no, 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 it, this, this film would really embarrass me, then, then I wouldn't. But I always tried to make the, uh, the retrospectives on which I worked as, as comprehensive as, as, as possible, because I think one learns more that way. So you included in the retrospective some of his films that he'd acted in as well. Yes. Why did you decide to pair his work that way? Because we recognize that this artist has many facets, not only as a filmmaker, but as an actor. John Cassavetes, who I think is a sure bet for stardom, is terrific as a man who's always in trouble. Look, T, I'm in trouble! I can go to jail for 20 years! I think his performances resonate basically on all levels, and he's very committed to the characters he portrays. His performances 
have also helped the development of popular cinema, films like Rosemary's Baby and, and uh, Dirty Dozen. My favorite is probably one of his most conventional films. It's a film I adore, Gloria, which is the film we world premiered shortly after his retros uh, retrospective here. This is the, the kind of the crossover. It had, for the most part, a very spirited Cassavetes touch, but it was much more of a narrative than the other films. The other films are looser. You know, the story is hardly important. It's the relationships mm -hmm. that are key. Jenna Rollins is Gloria. She's tough, but she sides with the little guy. You know, Janet Rollins, who to me, I, this is a woman who can do no wrong in cinema. You know, I think she's just one of the great, great actresses of the late 20th century. <laughs> As people, they seem to understand each other very, very well. And they were very tight. And I think each indulged, whatever that means, uh, the other. And as director and actress, I mean, you see the results. There's, uh, you know, there's no question that this was an extraordinarily fruitful collaboration. You know, when we did the world premiere of Gloria, and I can tell this story now, when there's an opening and moment, there's a dinner afterwards, right? And the company that handled the film, that financed the film, was Columbia Pictures, which was unusual for a Cassavetes film. And they said, you know, we'll fund the dinner. I got a call one day from John saying, you like my film, right? I said, yeah, we love the film. And he said, so the dinner is going to be a MoMA dinner, right? I said, yeah, of course the dinner is going to be a MoMA dinner. And he said, you're not going to let Columbia pay for it, are you? And I said, well, if you don't want us to. And he said, no, this is a MoMA dinner. I want MoMA to pay for it because if you believe in the artist, and I thank you. <laughs> it's not that, you know. He insisted that the opening dinner not be on premises. This was the other thing. And I said, well, Lord John, would you like the opening dinner? And he named a restaurant of mild fame. And he said, I want you to take over the restaurant. And that's where I'd like the dinner. It took us, oh God, about five days to do the worst thing in the world, which is a seating plan. So we show the film, everyone loves it, and we walk over to this, this, this restaurant. And within three minutes, John has said, I'm sitting here with Peter and Ben and so-and-so. And, uh, and we said, but, 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 but. And he said, oh, come on, it's my opening. And Jenna said, let him do it. I'll sit with you. I'll sit with the executives. Because she knew we were disappointed. She had this very <laughs> wonderful attitude. Just let it happen. And, of course, we let it, uh, let it happen. And then during the meal, we, we realized, he was very candy, why he wanted this restaurant. And that's because all the gangsters in the film were played by the waiters of this restaurant. So it was, you know, even to that extent, he incorporated his, uh, his cast into kind of his real life, and he wanted to make everybody happy, in it. And, and, and it was. It was a wonderful evening. I remember very little about it because everyone did get quite inebriated. You know, John was known to get inebriated, and so were his pals. So that, that's my story of, of Gloria. And I will never tell you who paid for it.
how do you see his impact on where independent cinema has gone since he was active as a filmmaker and also where it is now specifically? I think technology has caught up with his vision. Now, basically, so many people can take a digital camera and make a film about relationships on the streets of New York or Chicago or anywhere. Not that anyone's trying to imitate Cassavetes, but Cassavetes was one of the first filmmakers to do this, to have a particular look and feel and rhythm and intensity of passion. More and more people have access to the means of technology to make that that happen, and so much of this is now being seen basically on the internet and not in theaters. But there isn't a filmmaker working today who doesn't quote Cassavetes at some point and saying, you know, I want to make a film like this, or with the same observations about life and about uh, revealing one soul and about two or three people and their interactions with one another. So I think his, his influence has been really really quite significant. I would say to anyone who wants to watch a Cassavetes film, two things, I would say. Start with Shadows. Ben? Tom? I don't, I don't think you've ever even been in a museum, any of you. Go chrono chronologically. If you really mean it. Truly dear. I'm going to call my mother. Even see the films that he made for the studios, you know. Like Cagney and Bogey and all those great tough guys. Now there is Gloria. And at the same time, try to find some of his performances and get the richness of his, his career. You know, the films that he made as an actor and the films that he made as a filmmaker kind of describe the whole glorious arc of American cinema. Thank you for listening to the magazine podcast. This episode was produced by me, Isabel Castadio, Natasha Giliberti, Leah Dickerman, Prudence Pfeiffer. Our original music was composed by Pablo Altar. And thank you to our guests, Lawrence Kardish and Regenda Roy. You can find more episodes of the magazine podcast at moma.org slash magazine.